We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is a great idea. Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Clark, who is the author of a great new book, Warring Fictions, Left Populism and Its Defining Myths. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Hi. Um, So to begin with, first of all, it might be a bit of an obvious question, but I'd like to ask, why did you decide uh, to call the book Warring Fictions? Well, the reason I went for that title was that I was um, conscious that when in all of the debates that were happening within the Labour Party and across the left, you know, between the kind of Corbyn Corbyn supporters and the non-Corbyn supporters, it didn't really seem like we were discussing the substantive policy differences so much as that we were discussing different worldviews. So um, if you look at a lot of the... Uh, the stuff around conspiracy theories on the, the, the Corbynite left, for instance, it's, a, it's to do with an entirely different analysis of how the world is and how it works, and, and one which I think is largely untrue. So the reason I called the book that was to, to stress that I felt like the, the debate within the two sides of the left was more about kind of m- myths and different understandings of the world than it was about sort of degrees of radicalism, if you like. Mm. Um, Now, one of the um, centre parts of the book is the difference that you make between left-wing populism and left-wing pluralism. Um, Do you think you could give a a brief explanation as to what the difference is? Yeah, so in the book I, I set out three myths which I believe are the the left populist myths, um, which I'll probably going to explain a little bit later. But these are basically to do with um, good against the, the view that the world is good against evil, the view yeah. that pro- problems are authored by powerful elites, and the view that the past was better. Uh, so my basic difference is that left populists believe in those three things. Whereas uh, left pluralists are on the side of things where they they're equally left wing in many cases, um, but do not believe that they're kind of don't believe in these myths and don't believe that they're on the side of inherent virtue or that we live in a sort of thinly disguised dictatorship. So pluralism is really it's about a way of doing politics, which is not inherently confrontational or aggressive, which is not sort of conspiratorial uh, and which is not nostalgic. Uh, And you mentioned those uh, three myths and in the book uh, you refer to them as the Dark Knight, the Puppet Master and the Golden Era. Um, Looking at the Dark Knight to begin with, what do you mean as a a concept of the Dark Knight? Because I mean a a lot of people might think you're talking about Batman or something like that. So... um, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I have had that before, and it, uh, it sort of slightly has the, the air of a kind of Marvel comics about the yeah. names I've given the three myths. Um, and as, yeah, I should stress it's the Dark Knight, as in Knight with a K, not mm. uh, not 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 Knight as opposed to Day. So the re- this this myth is the idea that the political spectrum is a moral spectrum, uh, if you like, and that basically if you're if you're on the left, you're on the side of inherently on the side of 
of morality and, and virtue and, and goodness. And if you're on the right, you're on the side of sort of self-interest or spite. Uh, and it's so it's this this view of the world that it's that, that the polit- political spectrum is also a spectrum of good versus bad. Uh, and but and by implication that the further to the left you go, the more good you are, and the further to the right you go, the more bad you are. Um, and because it's turned politics into being always about a moral struggle, it means that even quite minor differences on, you know, a, a kind of small piece of education policy or something become moral questions where it's a, a battle of good against evil. And ultimately it leads to this kind of very simplistic us and them uh, form of way of debating things, which in the last few years within Labour, I think, has led to a kind of quite farcical positions on a lot of things. Do you think that um, the creation of things like uh, The Dark Knight, and we'll we'll go on to discuss the um, other myths in a little bit, do you think that it's a means of reinforcing an already held belief I think it comes from a place of the, the of not trying very hard on, to understand where the other sides are coming from. So mm-hmm. assuming that the only reason that someone could have a different view to you on welfare, for instance, is because they want to see, you know, they they want to see people forced into food banks or want to see, you know, want mm-hmm. to see people get killed or hurt or something. Um, not that there's different value systems which other people have and other parts of the political spectrum have which are also valid, even though I don't share them myself, which are also valid. So I think it comes from a, a sort of way of thinking which starts from that point of view that that what we think is self-evidently true and good and obvious. Uh, and the only way you could deviate from that was for for, for a reason of really kind of self-interest or or, or spite or nastiness. Yeah. Um, so and then it, it because it starts from that premise, it arranges a whole set of you know it creates these dark knights as I call it. You know the, the kind of the enemies against whom we must clash on all sorts of issues, whether it's U.S. foreign policy or the private sector or. Um, or the Conservative Party or whatever it is, it means politics is always defined as being against an enemy. Mm. Do you think that with the creation of these uh, particular myths, that it's almost as if people are living in a, a complete fantasy world? Would you suggest that some of these people who buy into these myths are fantasists in a way? Uh, well, yeah, I wouldn't want to use words like fantasists because it's sort of quite quite a pejorative word in mm. some ways, and I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to yeah, yeah. the far left myself too much. But I think it, to a degree, I think it is based on a, a, a sort of yeah, some slightly, almost a slight delusional ways of seeing politics that that there that there's this this kind of horrible blood soaked enemy who who. Uh, he strives for bad things and wants to create a more selfish and uh, unpleasant world. Uh, and actually, it just it very rarely lives up to reality. If you meet people, even people who hold quite conservative views or um, people who are quote centrists, they're not they're not motivated in any more by um, by sort of 
uh, spite or nastiness or unpleasantness. And I think, so yeah, I think the Dark Knight in a way is, is a comforting way of creating a kind of caricatured version of your opponents, which means you never really have to, to think about the realities of, of what they're like as people or what, what motivates them. Mm. Uh, one of the other uh, myths that you uh, mention in the book and is, is, is uh, detailed, um, discussed in quite detail in the book, is the concept of the puppet master. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so the puppet master is, um, it's the second of the myths, as you say, and it's, I guess you'd say it's the thin end of the, the sort of conspiracy theorists wedge. Mm. So we're all familiar with the kind of sort of quite extreme conspiracy theories you might get in parts of the left. Um, the view that, you know, that George Bush planned 9-11, for instance, or these, these kind of, kind of views. But, um, the, the puppet master is a, a broader term really for that view that we live in a, we live in a, a thinly disguised dictatorship rather than a, a broadly functioning democracy. Mm. So it's, it's a view of the world that sees everything as authored or everything as kind of imposed on us from above by a powerful few people who it suits them best to, 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 to impose these unpleasant things. So it, it sees mm. inequality for the sake of argument as something that has been deliberately and cynically coordinated by um, quotes of the powerful rather than seeing inequality as something that has sort of grown up for more complex reasons to do with globalization and, um, and, and uh, sort of more organic reasons like that. Um, so it's, it's sort of, it includes quite the very conspiratorial ways of thinking that you do find in some parts of the left, but it's, it goes further than that really, because it's about, it's about a, a way of seeing the world that always sees everything as the product of a grand design or of, um, uh, something done to us from above. Mm. Um, and one of the, um, things that you link this particular myth with uh, in regard to the Labour Party is anti-Semitism. Um, why do you think that in some parts of the left, anti-Semitism is so deeply rooted? Um, anti-Semitism is a, is a really good example of this. In fact, it sort of, it, it kind of overlaps between both the Dark Knight and the Puppet Master myth. It sort of mm. relates to the Dark Knight myth because it takes a, an absolutely good against evil view of the situation in the Middle East, which means try, you know, siding with one side absolutely unequivocally. Um, uh, and secondly, it's related to the puppet master because anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories are very closely linked together historically. Um, <clears throat> the actual reason that I think that the puppet master feeds into a, a sort of conspiracy a sort of anti-Semitic worldview is that if you're to say there are powerful people creating these horrible things in the world, powerful, a, a small cabal of powerful people creating inequality, climate change, war, etc., for their own interests, then you have to explain who that powerful cabal is. And if then, you know, how have they got into that position? Who are they? Because most people that we know in our lives um, are kind of not superhumanly competent enough mm. to micromanage everyone else's life, nor are they um, sort of inhumanly callous enough 
to want to do so. So I think in some ways anti-Semitism historically comes from that view that uh, you're looking for who are these powerful individuals who are, you know, different from us in these ways, who are superhuman and inhuman and control our lives for an extra zero on their bank balance. Um, and in the case of some people on the left, historically, it's, it's sort of jumps the rails and, and slipped into anti, anti-Semitism. So I think it's very hard for Labour to deal with its anti-Semitism crisis, which has been rumbling on as this sort of open sore for the last five years, without actually ditching a whole world view, which is based on an all-powerful 1% rigging the system to, um, to, to keep the rest of us down. Mm. Um, one of the other examples you use um, for the puppet master in the book is Rupert Murdoch. And I wonder, um, how much do you think that the way that some on the left perceive people like Murdoch is an inability, perhaps, or, or, or a trouble um, to recognise when the Sun is, or other newspapers that he owns, are perhaps reflecting a certain amount of public opinion rather than necessarily directly influencing it. Do you think there's a, a confusion as to the difference there from some people on the left? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the, the, the Sun clearly speaks for a constituency of opinion in Britain, which I think became larger um, from the 1970s onwards as there became higher levels of sort of self-employment, higher levels of home ownership and different values started to emerge. And the Sun in some ways reflects those values um it, it doesn't it doesn't help itself in making the argument that it's not a puppet master in that it has headlines like it was the sun what won it kind of a thing yeah. which uh, and it presents itself as very um overtly political on a lot of these issues obviously particularly around brexit um but i think uh, ultimately newspapers are commercial products appealing to an audience in the same way that any other commercial product is and and appealing to that audience by selling them stories that they want to they want to read. Uh, and The Sun has been particularly good at that. I mean, it's interesting, for instance, on Brexit, that The Sun takes an absolutely hardline uh, leave view, but The Times, which is also a Murdoch newspaper, uh, has been much, much more sort of centrist and, and remain in the arguments that it's made. Uh, in relation to Brexit. So that's, that shows that even on an issue like this, which is an absolutely huge political issue in which Rupert Murdoch has historically been a lifelong Brexit, uh, a lifelong Brexiteer, uh, ultimately the Murdoch press is more reliant on its need to, to appeal to what its readers think and feel than it is on the ability, its ability to sway the electorate. Mm. Uh, another good example is in the Scottish the Scottish general election a couple of years ago, they they backed the SNP because they wanted to back the you know their instinct is always to want to back the winner. So mm. um, yeah, I can I completely feel that that there is a misreading of Rupert Murdoch, who is a classic puppet master figure, you know, pulling the strings, brainwashing all the rest of us, whereas actually the titles that he runs and the media that he runs is mm. is appealing to um, values and beliefs that are already there within the population. Mm. Um, now, the uh, third myth uh, that you talk about is 
the concept of the golden era. What do you mean by that? Um, the golden era is the it's the idea of that there's this sort of glorious socialist past which we've departed from steadily. Mm-hmm. Uh, golden era is usually used to describe the um, the periods immediately after the, the, the sort of 1945 to 1979 period um, with the creation of the NHS and a sort of more uh, social democratic economy. Mm. Um, and it, it's this idea that there's been this, quote, neoliberal decline on all fronts from us being a kind of a left-wing communitarian socialist society to us being this really individualistic, selfish, bigoted, right-wing society. Um, So it's it's really, it relates to decline and to an idea of a sort of original socialism, uh, which modern life can never match up to. Um, So when I criticise the golden era, I'm not necessarily saying that everything has moved in a left-wing direction since the um, since the 1970s, for instance, I completely accept that inequality has grown and that um, there are many other huge, you know, lo- the London versus the rest issue has become much, much more stark. But it's the simplification of these issues into everything becoming an all out decline rather than something's getting better, something's getting worse, and the challenge is changing, which really makes the golden era so destructive because it's, it's really a very backward looking myth that sees the world as quite a bleak place. The only thing we can do is to stick our foot on the brake and rever- press reverse. Um, and, and it doesn't really have anything to say to the electorate either. It's a very, it's a very miserableist sort of way of seeing the world. Mm. And uh, one of the things you uh, link it to is the rise of Jeremy Corbyn and some people suggesting uh, that he was a, a Clement Attlee uh, type figure. Why do you think that some people feel that there is a such a, a strong association between Corbyn and Attlee, even though they've pretty much not really got that much in common? Yeah, yeah. well, the, I think the, the golden era myopia is at the centre of that because Clement Attlee was obviously... Um, quite a sort of he sh- what he shared with Corbyn was, I guess, at a very superficial level, he he was quite quiet, quite quite understated compared to some of the louder voices. He was quite a um, uh, a kind of soft, softly spoken and, and gentle character. Um, so I think on a completely superficial level, people look across and go, maybe maybe this could be our our Atlee. Um, but if you actually looked at his politics at the time, it was uh, it was much more moderate, certainly on a lot of the foreign policy issues. Um, I think Attlee, I think I'm right in quoting Attlee as, as saying the uh, joking about his own moderate moderation of saying the people's flag is palest pink because he was he he made a point of not being um, not being a kind of radical uh, an extreme figure and. The the golden era allows you to look back on at, back on the past and sort of impose on the Attlee government and the figures around that time this kind of glorious that they were these glorious the, the sort of roar of unchallenged socialist morality and that all the modern politicians be it Gordon Brown or Tony Blair or Ed Miliband or whoever aren't are unfit to lace their boots and that we really need to 
go back to that period and have, a period, have figures like those in that, that period. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I see that comparison between Atlee and Corbyn as coming really because people have, um, you know, looked back on the past in a very misty-eyed way and, um, and seen what they want in it. Mm. Uh, how much do you think of the mythologizing and the the use of these myths is um because you made the comparison between both Corbyn and Attlee being quite quiet people how much do you think it's less about the policies and more about the person what the person represents personality uh politics or such how much do you think that plays into the uh into left-wing populism yeah, I, I think that that is a very big part of this because if you look at um, a figure like uh, Corbyn, I think people have people have super projected onto him in many ways what they want him to be, which is this authentic, unvarnished figure who who cares about social issues and um, and is is kind of completely without. Uh, without any sophistry or any kind of sides to them. And people have projected that image onto them, onto him, because they want to believe that there was once this this era where politics was a, a simple kind of emotive thing and that we've we've moved into this horrible te- technical complex world where everything's very technocratic and boring. So I think I, I completely agree. If, if you look at... Um, if you look at the, the policies of Labour during the 1997 to 2010 period, when a lot of pretty progressive things were achieved, and then you look at the successes, such as they are of the Corbyn project, which has been almost non-existent, in policy terms, it's quite hard to actually argue that Corbyn is more left-wing or progressive than than, the, than those new Labour governments. Mm. Um, but it's uh, uh, but because he sort of looks the part and speaks this speaks this kind of authentic socialist language in a way that a, a more kind of shiny suit-wearing figure like David Miliband for the sake of argument doesn't um, people people latch onto that rather than the actual policies mm. um, Now you also mentioned in uh, the book you talk about uh, Donald Trump and the success of uh, right-wing populists why do you think that right-wing populism has succeeded in a way that a lot of left-wing populist movements or parties haven't? Yeah, that's a really interesting question um, because I think, and, and that was actually one of the the things that early on prompted me to start writing the book was there was, after the victory of Donald Trump, um, there was the, this argument made on the left that we need to imitate that. We need to, we need to find a, a left-wing anger and populism to, to ride and that essentially that Corbyn could be a kind of mirror, mirror image of Trump mm. on, the, on the left hands in the left hands column mm. um, and I, I fundamentally think that's wrong firstly from an ethical point of view because I think populism isn't is about being dishonest in a way it's not about presenting honest choices and decisions it's about appealing to people's emotions and pretending that hard, hard decisions don't exist so I think it's it would be wrong even if it was likely to be successful. But I also think all the evidence suggests that right-wing populism beats left-wing populism mm. when it's go head-to-head. Um, so, so Donald Trump, as you say, has completely bought into my three myths in a kind of right-wing 
sense, it's about making America great again, which is an absolutely um, golden era uh, way of talking about the world. Um, he's obviously riven with conspiracy theories about uh, about the, the American, various American institutions. Um, but as you say, for him, it's worked, whereas for a figure like Corbyn, or I suspect um, some of the more less populist figures running, running to be the Democratic candidate, it won't work. Why is that? I, I think that basically right-wing populism is able to speak to something more visceral and primal and immediate. Mm. Right-wing issues make easier hornet's nests to kick, if you like, than left-wing issues. Mm. Uh, you can... Uh, a a right-wing populist can point to the kind of Im Im immigrant in the, the doctor's waiting room and say, look, they're the problem, whereas there isn't that equivalent on the left for left populism. It's harder to... The, 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 the outgroups and the dark nights and the enemies are harder to pick out and make and, 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 um, and point to. So I think it's, it's, it's really that there's a, a real primal and instinctive thing about right wing politics, right wing populism, which speaks to people's gut instincts, which left wing populism doesn't to the same degree or with the same level of electoral success. Mm. Uh, now, you mentioned the um, American primary, and at one point in the book, uh, you quote Barack Obama saying that, oh, the Democrats are never going to end up like the Labour Party because they're too um, based in reality. Do you think yeah. that's true as we're, as we're going towards the, um, the 2020 election? Um, well, it, it's certainly looking quite up in the, up in the air on that front, in that obviously Bernie Sanders is, is doing very well, and it does look like America is moving towards more sort of left populists, as I would call them, candidates. Um, I haven't, the book isn't primarily about American politics, so I haven't covered that as much, but, um, but I do, I do suspect that, that it's a trend happening in quite a lot of countries is the move towards more left populist, um, types of movement. Uh, I think the reason for that is that a lot of the problems like inequality or, uh, the climate change have become much harder to solve mm. because of globalization, the inter interconnected world, all of these things. So there's kind of quite limited levers that the likes of Barack Obama uh, or progressive politics from the pro pro progressive politicians from the center left can pull. So because the questions have got harder, it's got easier for the people who are promoting easy answers um, to do, to do well. Uh, so, Someone, someone like Bernie Sanders is able to, on some issues, take really pr protectionist policies that in practice would be very hard to do. But because the, the pluralist left or the non-populist left hasn't got answers, it, it, it kind of opens the door for those, those left populist movements. Mm. Uh, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast. It's been great to have you on. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for uh, coming on and speaking to me. Yes, thank you. Um, and I'd like to ask one final question. Is there anything that isn't in the book that you would like to have included? Or is there something in the book that you feel, on reflection, you might have changed or uh, addressed differently? Is there, is there anything like that? Not really. Uh, I mean, obviously, the book came out 
immediately before um, the, twin, the the December the twelfth election. Mm. Uh, so it doesn't cover the result and include the result. And it doesn't it doesn't cover the fallout um, that's happened since. And in many ways, what the the descent into the, the a period of reflection, which actually hasn't been involved any reflection at all, from can tell. Uh, so, the, to a degree, I think it suffered from being written in a time when there's a hell of a lot of politics happening, uh, and it sort of ages in that respect. And I think it would be quite interesting, in a way, to look at the the way that these myths have impacted on those that quote red wall, that seat of that, that raft of seats that the Tories won off Labour in the, the North and the Midlands. Uh, it would be interesting to see how they've how the myths have uh, have impacted on on that and on Labour's inability to keep hold of its its historical uh, working class base. Um, so that would I guess be an interesting thing to reflect on were I to uh, have the chance to have a bit longer to work on it. Yeah. Uh, well I can certainly say that it's a fantastic book and I would definitely recommend anyone listening to it to, to, to go out and get it. So thanks again uh, for being on, Chris. Thanks very much. Cheers, uh, If you would like to um, subscribe to the podcast, you can do on Spotify, Spreaker and iTunes. If you'd like to follow us, you can do uh, at Debated Podcast on Twitter. If you'd like to follow us on Facebook, you can do at Debated Podcast. If you'd like to send us an email about this podcast or any of the others you've heard, then you can do at the Debated Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. <laughs>